As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey Posse, this is your host, Chrissy Benson, and I'm thrilled to report that my novel, Marrying Myself, is out. Look for Marrying Myself by me, Christine Melanie Benson, at all your favorite locations, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Nashville bookstore, Parnassus Books. It's about a vegan named Julia Jones, who's engaged to marry the love of her life, her true soulmate, who also happens to be incredibly wealthy, although that's not why she's marrying him. I won't give it all away, but things don't go quite according to plan. Also, she's a vegan. You're going to dig it. Check it out, christinemelaniebenson.com. Thanks, and now on to our podcast. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes Graham Sparrow. Graham started Sparrow's Nest Organics Certified Organic Farm in year 2000 by purchasing a 70-acre farm just north of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Graham grew up in a completely normal and average suburban environment in Calgary, Alberta, with two working parents and three brothers. He didn't realize how empty and destructive this normal and average lifestyle was to huge parts of the world, which he knew nothing about. By his early 20s, though, Graham was quickly losing interest in finishing his economics degree at the University of Calgary. He packed up his bicycle and camping gear for an extended trip to the UK. He spent nine months in Ireland, where he traveled and worked for room and board on several small farming properties. He quickly became hooked on the concepts of self-sustainability, organics, and food production. Ever since that bicycling trip nearly 30 years ago, Graham has been living a life of voluntary simplicity and veganism, farming and working with organic produce. His farm has evolved over 21 years, but his philosophy hasn't changed. He still manages a multifamily CSA, that is community supported agriculture, and he sells his fresh organic produce every Saturday year round at the local farmer's market in Edmonton. So Graham, welcome to the Vegan Posse. Thank you. Are you ready for the ride of your life? Yeah, you bet. Always. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, you've had quite the journey. So why don't you tell us exactly when you went vegan and what prompted you to do so? Well, I went, uh, I went vegan in my twenties and, you know, I have to thank my, my first serious girlfriend was a vegetarian at the time. Now this was back in the eighties when vegetarianism was like a totally fringe thing, at least in Canada maybe on the coast of California, it was a little more established, but uh, it was uh, a, a very new thing for me. And I'd, I'd never actually met a vegetarian before. So when my girlfriend and I at the time went out for our first meal, we went to a place called the keg and I ordered a big steak and she ordered a Caesar salad. And I said, what are you, is that all you're going to eat? Like, what's wrong with you? And she said, Oh, I'm a vegetarian. And I just, I was like, wow, what the heck? Um, so I was, veg- I became vegetarian shortly thereafter. I did some research and, you know, I'm a, um, a pretty cerebral person. So I wanted to see if I could be healthy and be a vegetarian. 
And of course, duh, yeah, you can. So I, once I did the research and I found out I could do it, I just jumped in with both feet. Uh, I think that was when I was 20 or 21 and I was vegetarian for five years or so. And then I just happened to move into a house in Calgary, uh, my hometown um, and lived with a couple there and they were vegans. And so I was already vegetarian for five years and I thought, this is perfect. I'm just gonna go vegan. Um, and ironically, since then, uh, he's a huge meat eater now, my old friend, Nigel, you know, he's like, and when I teased him about it, I hadn't seen him for years. And when I teased him about, you know, geez, you were vegan when we met and now you're like eating hamburgers. And he's like, oh, I was never vegan. It was just something I was trying on or something. For me, it's been a complete, you know, like for over 30 years, I've been a vegan and I've never looked back and it's not something I'm trying on. It's definitely resonates with my spirit and with the animals and with the environment. Um, so yeah, that was the transition. It was very easy for me. And, and, uh, the only time I find veganism difficult is when I'm traveling to, you know, the developing world. Um, it can be really hard to find food. Um, I haven't, meat has not passed these lips in 30, whatever years I have eaten. Um, what have I had in the last few years? I've eaten some cheese. I've had some eggs. Um, you know, when I'm traveling or whatever, but yeah, like I'm, I'm a staunch vegan and I love it. I just love it. Likewise. Yeah. I think, I think as you stay vegan for a long time, you come to realize it's impossible to be completely perfect because, you know, yeah, yeah. sometimes there are slips or sometimes there's an ingredient you're not aware of or, but, yeah. um, but I, I relate to that a lot. Veganism is not something I'm trying on yeah. or if, or if it is, it's like, I finally found the thing that fits. <laughs> so okay. I'm not taking it off. You know, I've got a sorry, I've got another layer of challenge, which is I'm gluten free as well, because I'm not celiac, but on that celiac spectrum, I'm fairly high. And so that's another restriction for me that makes it a little bit hard. Um, but, you know, it's easily adaptable to and I have adapted to it. So when did you discover that about your sensitivity to gluten? 10 years ago, Chrissy, you know, I had like upset stomach and just bloated tummy and lots of gas for years and, and tired fatigue. And I didn't know what it was about. And I finally went to a naturopath. And right away she said, oh yeah, you've got to get, get gluten out of your diet. Yeah. And I felt much better almost immediately. Like within wow. two months. I had you been, better. had you been eating a lot of gluten? Yeah, I yes. was, you know, I mean, that's kind of a go-to, I think, you know, when you do eliminate a whole spectrum of the food circle out of your diet, um, mm -hmm. you kind of make up for it with the, with the breads and the, you know, pancakes in the morning and making cinnamon buns and stuff. And so, yeah, it was, it was a pretty large part that I had to eliminate and change, but it was, it was quite easy to do. Right. Um, yeah. So tell me what made you so interested in food production? You know, that's a good question. I now just on the spot thinking about it, it's gotta be related to the diet and just, you know, realizing that this is how I'm eating. Why don't I grow? I can grow 90% of what I eat on the farm. So let's feed people with what people need to be healthy and, and vibrant human beings. So it was, it was the vegan diet that actually prompted me to be, you know, I went to school for economics. I was going to work in the bank for the rest of my life. I was working in a bank and I wore a suit every day and, you know, worked with all these really conservative people. And, and I did that for five years until I finally said, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. And, and uh, you know, so there was a big transition there as well, but but it was the diet that actually uh, encouraged me to, to grow food that I could eat. Interesting. And so what, what prompted you to actually make the leap to buy those 70 acres? And how did you, how did you even start? 
while it was that trip to Ireland, um, and again, it was with that vegetarian girlfriend back in university, we were both really just searching for, for who to be and what to be. And uh, we said, yeah, let's go to Ireland. There's a group called WOOF, W-W-O-O-F, which is an acronym for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. And it's a worldwide mm-hmm. agency. It's, a, it's, a, it's an organization. Um, and you can go to various countries around the world and, and work on organic farms. And so we, we joined WOOF Ireland. Um, well, I did. And I went to Ireland and, and worked on these farms. And that was what created in me the desire to come home. And, and follow that new road, entirely new road for me. Um, and so I, I apprenticed for about five years at different farms in BC, a couple of farms. Um, and I went to California for a year uh, in the Anza Borrego desert, just north of the Mexican border and worked, uh, ran a farm. I was the manager of the farm for a year, a certified organic apple orchard in the middle of the desert uh, <laughs> and learned skills about drip irrigation and row cropping and machinery. And, you know, I'm a city boy. So I had to learn all that stuff. It was all completely new to me. Um, so I apprenticed for about five years and I ran a health food, uh, a produce department in a health food store in Calgary, a thriving health food store. Great experience for me to learn about staffing and, and scheduling and making produce look good on the table, which is why at my farmer's market stall now I can make things look really good. Mm. Um, and so it was just a slow progression towards actually when I got to the point about after about five years of saying look I'm ready now I don't want to work for other people I want to have my own farm and have my own vision you know the other farms I was at here's one example Chrissy the one farm I was at and I love these people dearly they taught me so much about sustainable living but they were putting blood meal on their lettuce you know like they were buying powdered blood meal and sprinkling it on their crop and I'm like and I was a vegan at the time and they used to make such fun of me like in a, in a kind-hearted way but really they just mocked me and said you know I remember the man there used to say veganism is a form of fascism and I'm like what does that even mean what are you talking about man and and so you know they just mocked the vegan thing Hmm. um and putting blood meal on your soil like I just thought this is just not you don't need to do this to grow good food so I needed to find my own place I didn't want to work Hmm. under other people's parameters and, and philosophies so that was in 99 2000 when I left their place in British Columbia and uh managed to find this amazing farm I'm on now um, so just to clarify, I take it blood meal is a form of fertilizer. Yeah, it's literally Chrissy. It's disgusting. It's literally rendered like in the rendering plants, all that blood goes down the drain and they take it and they dehydrate it and they dry it and powder it and they bag it and, and, um, agricultural companies buy it and put it on the, on the soil. That's really high in nitrogen, super high in nitrogen. And so it does help the crops grow. It's a highly effective fertilizer, but it's disgusting when you think about putting blood on your soil and then turning it under. And oh, just to me, it's not And bone meal. People are using bone meal. So, you know, it's interesting because the, the organic movement has grown as well as the vegan movement over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, you know, instrumentally. And uh, now I, I believe in Canada, the, the national organic regimen says that you can't use blood products as part of your, uh, organic standard. You, you're not allowed to use that anymore. I, I might be wrong there, but. Okay. I, I was going to ask. Yeah. If that was the case. Yeah. Gross. So is, yeah, that is something I was not, not aware of. That's yeah. very, very gross. Yeah. What is, that- <laughs> is your, so is your farm be- veganic? You know, it's not, to be honest, it's not, I use a, I use um, a fish liquid. So, you know, maybe it's not much worse than the blood. So here I am, my, my hypocrisy comes through. 
I, I don't know how to be honest. I don't know how to, um, you know, I've been farming for 20 years and I don't know how to put those nutrients into the soil using just plants at this point. I've looked into alternatives. Now, canola apparently is, is fairly high in nitrogen. It's not as high as the blood, as the, as the fish liquid. Um, so I use a certified organic fish liquid, um, which is coming out of the, the Atlantic ocean, you know, and they are fishing and I get, I get all the, I understand what I'm doing. Like I, you know, and I feel bad about it because if it wasn't for that, I would be a totally vegan farm, veganic. Um, mm -hmm. Other than that one product, everything I do here is vegan, but you know, I don't know how to, alt I don't know how to get out of that one. It's, it's a tough one. As far as nutrients go, farming organically is tough enough because you're not using all the organic input, or I mean, you're not using all the synthetic inputs. Um, and my soil happens to be very lean soil. It's very sandy. So my, my main uh, challenge here on my farm is, is nutrient cycling and trying to keep nutrients in my soil. For example, at the market, I grow, um, let's just say kohlrabi and my kohlrabi is like about this big. And then the people that use fertilizer at the market, their kohlrabis are like this, right? Mm. Because they're using synthetic fertilizers. Now, since I'm organic and I don't use that, I get much smaller product. And if I didn't use that fish liquid, I, I don't think I would be farming, to be honest, or I'd be, I'd be really, really uh, handicapped in, in what I'm doing. Interesting. Isn't yeah, that a tough one, you know? Like, yeah. Man. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, well, veganism, of course, is a philosophy and a code of ethics and uh, an ideal. And in real life, you know, it's, it's unavoidable that we often fall short living in modern society. So well said. That's, it, is that's that very ideal, right? it is that yeah. ideal. So like I said, I looked into the canola and of course, Canada grows like, like millions of acres of canola every year. The issues with canola are that it's most of it's genetically modified. There are a few growers that are doing certified organic canola, but most of it's genetically modified, which means it's been tinkered with to grow with uh, herbicide treatments and not die from herbicide, which is in, its, in itself is just a scary thing that a plant won't die from spraying Roundup on it. Um, but so I can get like powdered canola from Saskatchewan, one of the one of the agricultural provinces here in Canada. Um, I just haven't moved yet. And, you know, it, it it's logistics. It's bringing a huge tote of powdered canola here and somehow learning how to apply that on my farm. So there, it's a learning curve. And, and I'm I've been thinking about it for a couple of years and I would really like to get off the fish meal or the fish, the fish liquid. It's a liquid product. And so the, the fish liquid, what is it exactly? It's literally just ground up. So it's waste fish that when they catch, you know, these horrible trawlers, I mean, we're all aware of what's going on in our oceans and, and uh, you know, they go out and catch and they, so they have the fish that they want to eat and then whatever is not edible, they, they, I, I'm assuming they siphon off into another tank and then they grind it up and they, they put it in big jugs for us and, and for growers like me. And, and uh, you know, I put it, what I do is I put it in my, um, in the drip system in the drip irrigation system and it just drips through and, and root waters all the, all the, all the crops. Wow. Crazy. I know. Yeah. I know. It's weird. Hey, like I've been it's a vegan very for weird. Yeah. years and I'm still buying fish liquid and I get all the inconsistencies there. Right. Right. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am a little speechless, but yeah, it's, right? I mean, again, again, it's so easy. You know, it's clear that you've, tried lots of things so I, yeah i've done the reading and the research and it's really you know it's it's really a difficult one i use a kelp meal as well a liquid kelp and it just doesn't have the nutrient spectrum that the fish does so the mm -hmm. kelp is high in other micronutrients and it's highly effective but it doesn't provide the same fertilizer as the fish right right um 
Well, I, I would assume that it's very empowering to be growing your own food. I mean, that's gotta be a great feeling. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, what's really amazing, Chrissy, is I've got a 13 year old son and, you know, for him to say, I'll say it supper time, Ben, can you run out and grab some kale? And he'll come back in with beautiful, just like literally just picked and just shining, you know, beautiful food. Yeah. We eat really well. Nice. And all Um, organic, much organic as we can. Yeah. Um, Well, that kind of leads me into my next question. Um, You mentioned that your suburban upbringing was empty and average, and (laughs) you're certainly not the first person to feel that way, but can you explain why you mentioned that? Well, I think it's important when, when we decide that consumerism is not you know, the religious experience that we think it is that this like, you know, case in point, Black Friday or whatever they call it is coming up. Used to be Black Friday and now it's the whole weekend. And now, in fact, it starts the weekend before, right? (laughs) And this, this, you know, it's insidious how it creeps into our life, this consumer culture and this God of money and worship. You know, I I, I don't know if we want to get into the whole banking system and the whole disease of money, but when you, when you, make a choice of voluntary simplicity and you get away from all that, you find richness and joy in so many other things. And so that's the only reason why I, I, you know, in reflecting on my, on my upbringing, my parents did the best they could. And they were both, I'm very blessed to not have, I don't have any serious mental health issues. I was never abused as a child. So I feel very grateful that I had a very average upbringing in that sense, but it was really devoid of any serious meaning of how to take care of our planet, how to take care of one another, how to communicate with each other, you know? So I, I like none of those skills are really taught anymore. We have to teach ourselves those things through adult life. Um, so in that way it was empty, you know, I love my parents and I, and I do cherish my family and my upbringing, but uh, it certainly doesn't compare. I don't think in, in uh, depth to what, what I've chosen to live now and the path I've chosen. So these days, your son is getting a very different growing up experience than the one you had. <laughs> how, how do you think that will serve him or is serving him? Well, I think it's going to it's giving him so many life skills that that just aren't taught, you know, everywhere. I mean, that kid can go start a fire out in the woods in three minutes. He's got a fire going when we go out. He's been a vegan, born and raised. He was born here in the house with a with a midwife. So he was a home birth. Um, and it's a tremendous story of. Um, how to express it. Like just, it's incredible. Humans are incredible beings. And we've really in the system we're in, it seems to just limit us so much to our potential, you know, and it's the people that, that break out of those shackles of what we're taught to be and who we are and who we can be. It's the people that break out that really shine and rise above all the rest. And so when I, when I observe Ben and just how he relates to other animals and other people, um, it, it really just gives me so it fills me with so much pride and joy to, to observe, you know, a, a functioning human being, you know, with a healthy immune system and, um, you know, good communication skills. And like he calls me on my stuff all the time. And it, you know, <laughs> he's got me backpedaling all the time saying, you know what, Ben, I'm really embarrassed and ashamed of that behavior. And you're right. Like, I need to work on that. Like, it's amazing for a 13 year old to tell you, dad, you know what? Yeah. That's great. So yeah. does he ever, did he ever question his veganism or? So now that he's 13, you know, the teen years, I'm just seeing the hint of the, of the attitude, the tune now <laughs> is coming out. And so I'm getting, you know, I'm getting the little flashes of like, this is me. And, and I, you know, this is Ben speaking of this is me and this is who I want to be. So 
you know, he's a vegan at the house here because that's what we do. We don't have any animal products in the house. So we eat vegan here. When he goes to a friend's house, if they get pizza, he doesn't always say, I want the diet cheese. I want the vegan cheese on, on the pizza. He'll just eat it. You know, and when he goes to a birthday party, he'll eat the birthday cake. So in his heart, he's a vegan when it comes to reality. Not so much. He's never, I don't think he's ever eaten meat. Unfortunately, his mom uh, went back from being a vegan and now she's been eating meat for a few years. So she served him chicken a few years ago in their house. Um, I had a real issue with that, of course. But so he came back and said, oh, dad, we ate chicken the other day. And I was just astounded, uh, you know, born and raised a vegan and with no conversation about, you know, I'm going to change his diet. So I said, well, what did, what was it like? What and he said, oh, it was disgusting. It was chewy and gross. And so I think once he tried meat, but other than that, as far as I know, he's never had, you know, so in his heart, he's a vegan. It's really hard. You can't control. It's our trip, right, Chrissy? I mean, this is our trip around. So you can't make someone else. It's like if you get a partner and they're like, you know, I, I respect your diet, but I'm not a vegan and you can't make them do it. They need to embrace it. Right. And so right. Is your child. right. Right. I'm a big fan of the author, Will Tuttle. And he talks about how we can't bring the herding mentality to carrying the vegan message. In other words, we can't try to herd people into going vegan through manipulation and control because that's counter to the whole vegan message, which is Absolutely. one of liberation and freedom and respect for one another's autonomy. So yeah, it's, right on. A, well it's a, yeah, constant uh, or not constant conflict, but frequent conflict. So that's very yeah. interesting about your, about it's, your son. Um, it sounds point. like, it sounds like he's having a great um, great growing up experience. And, and who knows, maybe in the long run, it will end up being a benefit to him to see his mom's example and come to his own conclusion in that yes, regard. I agree. And you know, the word hypocrisy came into his vocabulary <laughs> years ago, because you can see the hypocrisy of people, you know, saying that they're living a gentler, you know, this gets me Chrissy. And, you know, I don't mean to, I know you've got your set of questions, but I'll just throw this in the people that say they're environmentalists. We just had the COP 22 or whatever. And all these people say they're concerned about climate change. I, I didn't hear one explanation about the role of animal agriculture in our climate catastrophe not right now. Not one. It's all about fossil fuels. And I get that. That's an important part of it. But nobody's talking about animal agriculture and its role in destroying our, our, our climate. So you get these new age people that are saying, oh, I'm all about the environment. Let's save blah, blah, blah. And they go out and get their Big Mac, right? And I'm just like, talk about hypocrisy, hypocrisy or hypocrites, right? So Ben learned that word years ago. And so when he goes to his mom's and gets fed meat and they're talking about, you know, they're progressives and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, come on, man. Like, you know, you don't go back from being a vegan. It's like going back from being non-racist or progress, you know, like how do you go backwards <laughs> from that, right? Right. Well, I've reconsidered my position and, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you you mentioned that you live a life of voluntary simplicity yeah. what is voluntary simplicity and what are the benefits yeah yeah so that, meant, that just means realizing we're on a finite planet with a rapidly exploding population and that you know not everybody can have a flat screen tv and a huge suv and and all the latest fashion and you know so we get our clothes from thrift stores and uh you know, try to recycle everything and reuse and, and, you know, the vegan diet goes a long way to that, to the voluntary simplicity, but yeah, it's, it's just saying enough that we have so much here. And when, when, you know, when the developing world go, goes to these um, global conferences and says, look, you guys cause this problem. It's your hyper consumption. That's causing it. You guys, it's time to give back. And we say, 
no, we, you know, I'm scared. I don't want to cut back on my energy consumption. I mean, we have so much that we can give and share and, and stuff. So it's just, a, it's just a, an actual, um, I'm having a bit of a blank in my head to express it, but it's just that you got to make a mindset that says, I don't need so much. I can live fine with less. And if the rest of the developed world said that, you know, there'd be so much more to go around. So that's in a nutshell, Chrissy, I guess that's what it is. It's just making that that voluntary thing in your head that says, I don't need so much to be happy. It's got nothing to do with happiness, how much junk you have in your life. In fact, to me, it's stressful. When I look, I don't know about you, but when I look in my closet and I see 15 shirts to wear, it stresses me out because I'm like, I don't know which one to put on today. Like I, I need three shirts and then I'm good to go, you know? Right. <laughs> so do you see, do you see voluntary simplicity as having personal individual benefits or is it more just an act of generosity for everybody else on the planet? That's a good question. I think it's both. I mean, it helps me, like it helps me feel better about myself and my small contribution to humanity. But I think if people, like I get people coming to the farm all the time and I think they see it, they come into my home and they see how simple it is. And you know, like the first thing in my home, people notice is all the awesome food in the shelves. Cause I have all my cupboards off, all the doors are off the cupboard. So it's all <laughs> open, right? So they see all the glass jars of legumes and, and grains and you know, it, it's amazing. So they can, and, it's just less, less packaging, less driving, less clothing, like I said. So I think it, in the larger picture, it also helps people. If you lead by example, people see, you know, look, here's a happy individual that is really trying to get by with less and it works. Like, to be honest, it works. Right. And I think with accumulating a lot of possessions, there's that law of diminishing returns. You know, the more, the more possessions we have, the less we enjoy them overall. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what do you think is so important about organic farming as opposed to conventional farming? Oh my God, that's a big one. That's a big one. I mean, again, it's it's leading to, you know, just to, and I'm not diminishing people's, you know, knowledge of what organic versus conventional is, but just in a nutshell, the conventional farming uses, uses uh, chemical inputs to grow their food. So they're using uh, synthetic fertilizers in the ground which is insanity because, you know, the research is, is showing, they, they know this from a hundred years ago when they first started using chemical inputs like nitrogen, anhydrous nitrogen, ammonia into the soil. By the time the farmer gets to the end of the field to turn around and come back and do the next row, 50% of that is oxidized and gone up into the air. So very little of it actually stays in the soil. So this farming technique has nothing to do with efficiency or with quality or with um, being easy for the farmer, it's got nothing to do with any of that. All it is is agribusiness and all it, all it serves to, uh, to help are the large agricultural business interests that are producing the fertilizers and now producing these seeds that are, are meant to be uh, grown with these fertilizer inputs. So, you know, organic farming breaks away from all those chemical inputs and uses the natural processes of nature to build the soil um, using compost and certain crops that we grow, legumes that fix nitrogen from the air and other cereal crops that, that put organic matter into the soil. We use the natural processes of nature to improve our soil quality and to uh, quite frankly, grow better food. Um, healthy plants like healthy people resist disease far better than, than people that are taking 20 supplements a day and then eating shit food, excuse my language, but crap food all, all their lives. You can't do that with supplements. You need, it's gotta be your diet and your lifestyle. And same with plants, healthy plants actually naturally resist insect and other uh, invasions. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's absurd what we've gotten ourselves into, but the whole world right now 
is, you know, at the mercy of business interests. And this is how we kind of opened the, the interview this morning, Chrissy, was that, um, you know, it's the business interests that have turned money into a god, really. And we worship this god of money and agriculture and business. So you can get these, you know, you can get these politicians standing up railing against, you know, socialism or whatever. Like, what is socialism? That's helping people pay their, you know, helping people have health care. But anyways, like, you know, you can rail against that and then they'll go into a into a developing country and put mining equipment and, you know, attack indigenous people that are saying you can't do that. So it's an absolute sickness. And this has invaded our agricultural industry. And this is why we're at the point we are today. It's a huge topic, you know, and so I'm trying to squeeze it all down into a very sure. small. Yeah. I can talk about that alone for an hour, but. Right, right. You know, I appreciate so that. Organics, organics is really small is better. Like, like it was at EF Schumacher that said small is better, right? And mm. it truly, you can put more attention onto a smaller amount of stuff and grow better stuff than if you're growing these huge, huge tracts of land. Right. Putting all, these, putting all these inputs on, which are highly expensive. They're terrible for the environment. Um, you know, it's bad for the farmers. There's so much cancer in the agricultural industry right now because of all these inputs that they're spraying on their crops and how can they not be bad for the environment the water system the ground nesting birds all the all the mammals that live on the ground you know i've seen uh you really you really got me going here um but when i when i bought this farm there's a ground nesting bird here in where i live in alberta uh called a spruce grouse it's a grouse and there were none here on my farm because they got sprayed they lay their they lay their eggs in the ground in the spring the farmer comes by and sprays the roundup and kills the birds and now i have spruce grouse everywhere on my farm it's beautiful because you're a haven a, yeah right it's an oasis wow. right and i planted I planted thousands of trees and shrubs that, that bring the deer back and let the, let the birds browse in the, in the winter. Now, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but it's minus 15, which I think is about five degrees Fahrenheit right wow. now. And my shrubs, my lilac and stuff are full of, of pine grass beaks and, and chickadees and stuff. And they're living off the, the seeds that those trees produce. Wow. Right? It's a whole viewpoint of, it's not all about humans. You know, mm -hmm. we have this, we have this crazy, crazy religious belief that the humans are at the top of this pyramid and then everything else, you know, and it's absurd. It's not the indigenous people know that we're a part of this web, this in, intricately connected web of we're all the same. If humans go, the rest of the planet's going to do fine. In fact, they're probably going to do better. We're not at the top of some pyramid. Right. Uh, right. And on uh, the, on the subject of socialism, I've heard it. Oh my goodness. I've heard it said here in the U S that um, these politicians, you know, rail against socialism, but we seem to believe in it for big corporations, you know, bailing Absolutely. out banks and subsidies, welfare. To, Absolutely. Yeah, urban welfare. Again, so hypocrisy. again, yeah, hypocrisy. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so for people who live in big cities or urban environments without much, if any land, what would you suggest to get them in touch with the process of growing food? This is a great question. And it's for me as a grower, like I sell my product every Saturday at the market, Chrissy, and the numbers are doing, they're dropping, you know, and it's really hard to make a living right now. Like yesterday I had a terrible day at the market, nobody shopping. Like I said, I think they're online buying crap through Amazon and they're not supporting local growers. They have no way. So many people are so distracted and this is the goal. This is the whole system is like, let's keep them distracted. Let's get them looking at the latest big screen TV and whatever shoes are cool or whatever. And yet like farmers are struggling all over the world. And you know what? Like I got, I have nothing to complain about really compared to 
You look at farmers in India that are committing suicide by the day. There's dozens of farmers per day committing suicide in India because of the debt situation and the drought situation and the growing conditions that are being foisted upon them by agribusiness. You know, um, people, they're, they're killing themselves over their, their plight in other parts of the world. I'm not there, but you know, I'm, I'm just barely holding on financially. And you know, if I went to Costco on a Saturday, you couldn't find a parking spot. It's full of people. I know when COVID first hit and the market died, like there was nobody at the market because of COVID. I remember on the Thanksgiving here, usually Thanksgiving and Christmas are the two biggest days at our market. And we do very well. Thanksgiving was dead. And I'm like, what the heck? I needed mm -hmm. some almond milk or something. So I stopped at our local superstore, which is a grocery chain here in Canada. Went to superstore, madhouse. People with carts full of food shopping. And I'm like, where were you at the market all day? Like we're open eight till three. I went at four o'clock to superstore, full of lineups of people with their carts full like junk food, crap food coming from Mexico and US. And here's a small local organic grower growing stuff an hour out of the city. So uh, to answer that question, I don't know. It's extremely frustrating for me and, you know, to have worked so hard and built this farm up and then possibly consider selling because I can't make a living at it because people aren't supporting it. I don't know what to, like, I don't know what it is. You know, right. most of my friends don't buy from me, Chrissy. I have some awesome friends here in the city. You know, we hang out and we go skiing and we go out for a beer once in a while or whatever. Never see them at the market. And maybe it's because it's a Saturday and that's a busy day for a lot of people and they can't come in. But by and large, 90, what, 95% of people do not buy their food weekly from a local farmer's market. 95%. Right. I don't myself. Right. Always, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Like, I get it. I Like, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just, I'm frustrated, but I'm not judging people. They're not, my friends are not bad people. They get that they're doing their own battles. Right. But they don't come in and buy every week. Right. So I don't know. Right. I don't know how you get right. people eating more. That's a really good question. That's like the question for me as a local or as a grower, because it's my business and it's my life, it's my livelihood. So when people don't shop at the market and my deposit is half of what it was two years ago, I'm like, how long can I keep doing this for? Wow. What happens when I go? Like what happens right. when I disappear and then another one disappears and another one disappears. Some agri, some agri business is going to buy my farm hmm. and start growing canola. We don't need more canola. We need kale and we need arugula and we need potatoes, organic potatoes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, well, on the subject of organic, you, I've heard people talk about the dirty dozen, you know, the, yes. the produce that's most important yeah, to buy organic. Can you say a little bit about that? Like what yeah. foods really need to be prioritized when it comes yeah. to buying organic? That's another good question. Um, you know, when we go out, my son and I'll go out once in a while and go get a pizza at a local artisan pizza restaurant. And I hate to say it, but when I get it and it's got the peppers on it, I pull them off because they're one of that dirty dozen. Like if they're not certified organic peppers, it's one of the highest sprayed crops Hmm. And, and so peppers, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't know the 12, but I know like peppers, peanuts, if they're not certified organic, use a lot of fertilizer and a lot of uh, herbicides to uh, hmm. potatoes are another bad one. So I don't know specifically what you'd like me to answer about that, but you know, certified organic, you're always like, people come to me and say, oh, you know, it's so much work peeling your carrots or whatever. And I always say, don't peel your vegetables. If they're certified organic, 60% of the nutrients are in the first millimeter of that peel. Just mm. brush them off. I've got a specific brush on my sink. That's my veggie brush. Mm -hmm. I never, ever peel vegetables, even my potatoes. Like, don't peel your veggies. Right, right. Same here. Same here. Right. Um, but I had, maybe you can explain this to me because I, 
I had the impression that foods that grew under the ground were somewhat buffered from herbicides and pesticides. So why do potatoes need to be organic? So good question. So now I see where you're getting at. So it, that is true to a degree that they're not getting directly sprayed, but it's the processing. So once they're, what happens specifically with potatoes, um, the, the conventional growers will, will spray an herbicide in the fall to kill the, the plant because the machines dig better. We always have to fight because we have these, you know, three feet of top of the plant that we're fighting with as we're digging the potatoes because we don't kill the top. So they spray a herbicide, they kill the, the green part of the plant, under the ground, the potatoes coming out. But then once they start processing those potatoes, they'll often spray, I mean, I would say generally spray, um, uh, sprouting inhibitor, which is a chemical that prevents them from sprouting. Because when you go to the store and you see those sprouting potatoes, mm. the sprouts are technically uh, toxic. You just have to nip off that sprout and then it's fine, but you don't want to eat the sprouts. So, you know, they use a sprouting inhibitor. So it's more of the processing part, the growing part. Sure. You might get it. Same with carrots. Like if you're spraying a herbicide to kill that green before you lift the carrots and, and process them, you might get away from direct contact, but that stuff's in the soil. Like it is in that top, you know, quarter inch of soil. So there's still, it's still touching it. It's still in contact with it. It gets, you know, and then the larger question is environmentally, it gets in the water table right? So they're, they're irrigating. Um, I don't know if you remember, I think it was earthbound. I don't want to get sued here, but it was, a, it's a fact that it was earthbound greens sprayed sewage sludge. Can you believe this on a California spinach um, farm? And they sprayed sewage sludge and it killed people. Like people got E. coli or whatever it was, right? I right. Mean, that's I just, remember. Yeah. Right. It was only about the last five or seven years in Canada. It killed the real people. And uh, that total recall of that product. And I mean, some managers saying at some point, yeah, let's put this sewage sludge on this, like just totally disconnected from what they're doing, which is growing beautiful food for people, right? Some manager there had no idea the link between pathogens in sewage sludge and putting it on in a field of certified organic spinach greens, like, hello. Right, and then the spinach got blamed. That's as right. If, as if it were sewage sludge from the spinach. Yeah, yeah as if it just, right, you know? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about community-supported agriculture? I'd love to. It's one of my, it's one of my faves. So I, I did the, the CSA, the community supported agriculture. Um, I started doing that the first year I bought the farm. So I wasn't ready to produce for a market because I didn't have any systems in place to, you know, be consistently providing a, a, a great product year round at a market. So I didn't get into markets until probably my sixth or seventh year of production. But the very first year I did a garden when I bought this new farm. And I think I had 13 people in my CSA. I browbeat my, my friends and said, please, can you buy a share? you know, and they reluctantly did. And then they were like, this is amazing. Wow. They got fresh tomatoes every week and lettuce and carrots and stuff. Um, so, so for people who aren't familiar with CSAs at all, um, yeah. can you explain people, people yeah, buy like, a share? And so it's so, yeah, it's so important to the farmer because in the spring, when we have so little income, um, what we do is we take deposits on the summer's uh, share in the garden. This is, this is my model anyway. And I think this is pretty standard is that people prepay for their vegetables. So in the spring, when I have my fuel costs coming, my seed, the cost of certified organic seed has gone up four times in the last 10 years. Um, so I'm spending thousands of dollars in certified organic seed every year. Um, then my labor comes in to help work and yet we're not selling anything at the markets yet because it's spring here. The snow has just melted and we're getting everything going. And we've got three months of work to do before you know, the carrots are ready and the onions are ready. So we have all those months of, of very low income and all these high expenses. So the CSA is wonderful because people prepay in February and March for their share of produce through the summer. 
So they give us their money, we can get the, the farm going. And then in June, July, August, September, October, they get a weekly box of food from the farm. And that's how the system works is it really helps the farmer get going in the spring. Uh, and then they get a beautiful box of food every week through the growing season. So what do you grow on your farm? I do A to Z, I always say, because A is arugula and Z is zucchini. So, um, sorry, you guys say A to Z, right? A to Z, <laughs> um, Canadian here. Um, lots of stuff. So I'm just trying to picturing my field. We do field tunnels. Everything on my farm is field growing, no hydroponics or anything. So it's all on the ground. Um, we do have field tunnels. So they're big poly tunnels, 100 feet long and 30 feet wide. And that's where all the tomatoes are and cucumbers. I've been growing melon, just amazing cantaloupes lately. They've got some short season. They're like 50 day melons and they're just unbelievably sweet and juicy so we're doing melons now in the in the field tunnels um yeah cucumber tomato and then in the field we do all the potatoes we do lots of winter squash as well as summer squash so the summer squashes are the zucchinis and the patty pans and the crooknecks and then for the winter squash lots of butternut buttercup hubbard kabocha delicatas lots of potatoes lots of greens like spinach kale swiss chard collard greens, arugula, we do a baby lettuce mix um, where we cut it small and wash it, spin it dry and then we bag it, it sells very well. All the root crops are the beets, carrots, uh, lots of onions, shallots, leeks. We did garlic, but the garlic crop flooded out last year. You know, we're in this time, Chrissy, the, this unprecedented time of climate catastrophe. Last year we flooded, or I mean, sorry, two summers ago, we flooded out here in central Alberta. My fields were underwater for eight weeks of the year and I lost all my garlic. Uh, and then this year we had no rain for about three months. We had, had not a drop of rain here. So we went from like torrential downpour two years ago to drought this last summer where it was so hot and dry. And thank God I have drip irrigation or we, we would have just, everything would have just burned up. Wow. So what, what patterns have you noticed just in general over your couple of decades yeah, farming? So just more extreme. And this is what they're saying. I mean, some people would, would misname climate change as global warming and it's not all warming. It's just more, more severe weather events. So we would get super intense rainstorms in 30 minutes. We would get a, a month's worth of rain in 30 minutes. Um, super cold in the winter like minus 40 degrees and i know celsius and fahrenheit kind of overlap at about i think minus 30 they become the same so you guys can imagine minus 40 for a week here with the winds blowing it's like you go outside for the absolute bare minimum and then you just go back inside so super cold little bursts and then it'll go up to above above freezing you know we'll get up to like the 40s the next week it's crazy and it's so hard on the animals like, i don't know how the deer and the moose do it you know mm -hmm. Um, so super dry, super hot, uh, earlier spring, sometimes earlier snow in the fall. Sometimes the fall goes super long and it's warm right into like November, December, where that's traditionally when we have snow and it's winter. So everything's changing. Right. In a very short period of time, because I've only been doing this 20 years and I've seen huge changes in 20 years, Chrissy. Wow. Yeah. Um, why is food security a concern of yours? Well, you know, now with, with a global pandemic, it really becomes clear that uh, when supply chains start, start to falter, people panic. I don't know if you guys did this in the U.S., but in Canada, when COVID hit, people didn't go and buy food. They went out and bought toilet paper, right? And there's a shortage on TP. Like, what the hell, man? You know, um, when food starts to disappear now, Central California is the breadbasket of North America. And that underground aquifer is almost empty that they've been pumping water out of to irrigate that whole Central Valley in, in California. And with climate change, there are gonna be huge, huge food shortages in the next coming 
you know, few years and people are just carrying on like everything's the same. I don't know what it is in human, in our genetic composition, why we can't grasp this long-term reality of what we're doing to the planet, but California's going to run out of water. I mean, what's the big dam there that's down? There's a huge Mears Dam or something. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's huge. It's a lake and it's down like 60 feet. It's down to like 12 wow. feet of brackish water. Right. And this is the water supply for like, I don't even know. It's it's in maybe it's in Nevada or something, but it's almost out of water. And this is a huge for agriculture. This is a huge source of water. So, you know, there, yeah, local food, keeping your local farms going. Right now we had floods, we had uh, landslides. I don't know if you heard this in the news there, but in mm -hmm. Vancouver on the West Coast, we had these torrential rains and it washed out. They had mudslides on the mountains and it washed out. The, there's my dog. <laughs> We washed out um, all the highways. So there's no trucks coming from the west coast of Canada from Vancouver. That's the port from China. There's no food. There's nothing coming right now into eastern Canada. So Alberta is just on the other side, on the east side of British Columbia. There's no food trucks coming through. So if you go into, I went into the food store yesterday to get a couple of things, to get some Beyond Meat burgers. And uh, the, the shelves are empty. A friend, I bumped into a friend there and he's like, oh, they've got no mushrooms on the, you know, and they're starting to run out of food. And that's three days of no trucks. When we start to get serious supply chain, issues and and you know for whatever reason because of this climate catastrophe we get roads washed out and flooding and stuff like that the food systems are going to fall apart and when we're getting food from china and from south america you know that it's really going to start to become evident how vulnerable we are to the to the transportation system which is so vulnerable to environmental problems you know right so what do you, do you feel some security having your own farm and growing your own food? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even if, you know, even if the power goes out and the zombie apocalypse comes, you know, I got a, a basement full of preserved food and, and it's going to be a hard time. Like, I don't, you know, if my friends start calling me saying we want to come out all of a sudden, you know, I'm not going to turn them away. I'm not going to say, no, you know, you weren't out for the last 10 years. I didn't see it at the market. Um, but on the other hand, you kind of, you know, that selfish human side says, you know what, you're on your own, but of course we're not. So. Right. Well, I mean, what do you think the answer is or how do you, do you see any hope of turning this ship around? Well, it's a big ship to turn around Chrissy. So, you know, that's a good question again. And just on the spur of the moment, I didn't really think about it, but it's gotta be the schools. Like the kids have to learn that it's important to grow, excuse me, it's important to grow food and it's important to eat good food. You know, Canada just just changed its food guide. Before it used to be like meat, what was it? Meat, dairy, grains, and vegetables. And now they've actually, they've called it meat and meat substitute. So tofu is actually in there. Legumes are actually in there as a viable alternative to meat protein, right? So it's coming. And when this, now when the kids, like when, when Ben comes home and tells me what they're learning at school, it's completely different from what I learned 40 years ago, you know, and the, just the gender, gender acceptance and, and, you know, more progressive politics, environmentalism. So it's got to start at the schools. These kids have to have to learn that it's not okay to kill our planet. We're not going to all fly to Mars with Elon Musk. I hate to say it. That's, that's the playground of the rich and famous that have too much money and they don't know what to do on the, on the planet, on the planet. They're going to fly to Mars, let them go. They're causing all the problem. Anyway, the people <laughs> left here to deal with the problems that many of them have created. Um, it's all about local sustainability and smallness and traveling less and, you know, community and reaching out to your community and getting to know who's around you. And so I think it starts with the schools. Anyway, that's my, in a nutshell.
it's getting the kids to turn their attention from Minecraft and gaming and get them out in a garden. Right. Does Ben like to spend time outdoors in the field? He does, but it's changing now that he's, you know, like we lived outside, Chrissy, as much as we could. We were out like today's Sunday. It's it's my one day off really from the work week Um, and no religious thing. It just happens to be, you know, our one day of rest that we happen to not be at a market and I'm not working through the week. So Sunday was always our day to go and have a fire in the woods and we bring some vegan marshmallows and make some hot chocolate and have a fire with the dog and now it's like pulling teeth. I mean, he used to just, I'd say, Ben, let's go. And he'd be out, have his snow pants on. And, and now he's like, no, nah, he's on his phone. Like right now he's up on his phone texting with his friends. And so he loves it. And he's very capable as an outdoors person. He's very capable of staying warm and being sensible and, you know, knowing what directions are. He's got that gift in him now because I've given it to him, mm-hmm. but it's, it's what he does with it. And maybe he's going to squander it. And maybe in 10 years, he's going to really realize that, you know, he's got, He's got skill sets now that he could lead people to teach them how to survive outside if he wants to do that. Right. I'm sure he'll be very glad that he has those skills, whether he appreciates them now is, you know, debatable possibly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, So Graham, how does veganism inform your perspective on the world in general? Oh, good question. Um, You know, I think it, again, it's a disconnect. It's a disconnect with our surroundings and what, what it is that's bad for us. Like, you know, this is going back to the hyper consumer, hyper consumerism. Um, and if we don't know that raising livestock, like, don't you hear this when you, when people, you, you get in a debate with them about veganism and not eating animals and they're like, well, what happens to all the animals? And you're like, Jesus F Christ. Like, we're raising, we're breeding animals, like just quit breeding them and there won't be an animal problem. Right. And so, when people don't know what's causing them great harm and they, they sustain it, um, you know, it's like, where do you go from there? How do you teach people to, to be compassionate for all beings? You know, a lot of people choose veganism. I, well, I don't want to say a lot of people. Some people choose veganism in a very selfish perspective, just to be honest. They look at their body and they're like, this is right for me. And I'm in the gym and look at how lean and fit I am. I chose veganism because when I read Animal Liberation, by Peter Singer years ago. That was the first book I read. And when I read about how animals were being experimented on um, and the pain and the suffering they go through in these factory farms, it made me sick. And I thought, how can I not know about this? How can I do this? So for me, like I said, I read books right away when my ex, my girlfriend at the time was a vegetarian. To me, my health was secondary to the process. Paramount to me was the health of the environment. Because even back then, like 30 years ago, I was bringing my own shopping bags to the store and they were like, what the hell are you doing? And now, you know, it's like, it's normal. Um, but back in the day, when I realized what we were doing, I'm like, I can't support this. And, you know, we need to, we need to connect people in, into what our actions are doing to the greater animal population. We're all animals. I mean, people like to say there's humans and then there's the animal kingdom. We are the animal kingdom. And so what we're doing to ourselves, we're doing to all the other animals. Um, so I, I keep that, it's with me constantly. When I think about what animal agriculture is doing to the planet, and I think, you know, the water issues that we're facing, um, it, it really does lead me in most of my thinking of the, the vegan compassionate diet. You know, there's that fantastic, fantastic do- documentary out, um, the sport one on Netflix now about the sports and how. The game changers. Um, yeah, game changer. Oh, that's yeah. in my favorites. And I, we, Ben and I watch it every time to time. And it's just, 
astonishing that the science has finally caught up with, you know, with the whole vegan plant-based diet and how nourishing it is and how good it is for our body, how readily it digests these, these foods and how it boosts our immune system. And I mean, it's just so clear. And yet, how do you get people to, to go from this direction and say, look, let's just, let's just try this, you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. If, well, obviously if either you or I had the answer, everyone would be vegan. So right? there's no right. silver bullet. <laughs> And even the direct people we're in contact with, Chrissy, like your family must know your, your values and your food choices, right? And yet they still refuse to, you know, they take it like it's, um, like it's almost like a, a religious choice or like, oh, it's, oh, that's okay. You can be that. You can be Buddhist or you can be Muslim. That's your choice. And when you say this isn't about my spiritual choice, this is about, right? I mean, we get it, but they yeah. take it as some kind of a lifestyle. Right. Oh, can I tell you a quick story? That yeah, please. So, so I have bonfires out here once in a while. We do a solstice fire in the fall, big bonfire, and I get people to come out or an equinox fire in September. And some new people, some friends of Ben's kid, like Ben's friends, their parents wanted to come out. And so I just said to them, it's great. You guys come on out. It's a, it's a family event. It's kid friendly. You know, we're not all falling around drunk and you know, it's a, it's a great thing. Come, but please, it's a vegan event. So please respect my decisions and just bring meat, uh, plant-based, whatever you're gonna bring to the campfire. Well, I had moms writing me in, oh my God, why are you trying to impose your beliefs on us? And I'm like, <laughs> you can come or you can't come. Like, you know, said, and they're like, so I wrote them back, I thought about it. And I'm like, how do I respond to these people? And I said, this is not a lifestyle. Like I'm not, this isn't some flaky new age. Like it's not like crystals that are gonna help me. You know, this is like a food choice that is actually good for the planet. And I'm not going to back down from what my choices are. I'm not trying to impose it on your lifestyle. You can go back on your way home from my campfire, go to Wendy's and get a big double bacon, cheese, whatever you want to do. But I'm saying on my farm, please respect it and bring some Eve's veggie dogs. Is that a big deal for one day? <laughs> Crazy, hey? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, that's, that's hilarious. And also in some ways, not surprising. I've encountered the same sort of resistance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, that phrase, I keep a vegan household has come in handy for me at times. Um, right. I've hosted a few events and asked people to bring vegan dishes to share. And I remember on one of these occasions, somebody texted me on her way over. She said, oh, I, they didn't have the vegan cookies I was looking for. So I'm just going to bring regular cookies. And I wrote back and I said, thank you, but I keep a vegan household. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to use so that one. Sometimes just having that phraseology can come in really handy. Yeah. Um, is there a particular word that sums up your feeling about being vegan? You're, you're a very good interviewer because this was going through my head while you're telling me your story there about why have we shifted from the word vegan and veganism to plant-based? And I don't know what that is because vegan, to me, plant-based is about me and I'm gonna eat a plant-based diet because it makes me healthier and my skin's better and it's all about me. But veganism is a stance for animals and the planet. And I'd rather be a vegan than plant-based any day. And like, you know, it's, um, what's that word when you debate, uh, uh, when you debate the meaning of words, you know? It's like that to me, you know what I mean, right? Um, um, yeah. Not etymology, semantics. semantics. Semantics, thank you. Yes. That's it. Thank you, Chrissy. So it's semantics, like veganism, plant-based. But to me, veganism has a real animal rights stance to it. And I'm diehard vegan. Like when I think of the animals, I'm in Alberta. So Alberta, for people that are watching in the US, Alberta is the Texas of Canada. So we are oh, really? 
Absolutely. Our two primary industries here in Alberta are fossil fuels, resource extraction, and animal ca cattle. So I can look over the river valley here, a kilometer away, half a mile away, and there's 150 cows being fattened up for to go off on a truck somewhere to get made into hamburgers. So, you know, like to me, the veganism thing, the animal rights, like these animals are living outside at minus 30, they get in a truck, you know, they're freezing, these trucks are open and they draw, you know, and it's just yeah. horrific. The lives that these animals live are horrific. And uh, so for me, veganism, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm a vegan, like I'm hundred percent about the animal rights and that no animal deserves, you know, when we go one step, I don't want to say down, I don't want to diminish primates, but if we go one step down the evolutionary chain to monkeys and apes and gorillas, and we're experimenting on them in horrific ways that we would never do to a human being, to a homo sapien, um, it's, it's appalling to me that humans are doing this to other people, you know, and testing shampoos on them to see, to hit that LD50 mark where 50% of them die from, right? And saying, okay, well, this shampoo, if someone happened to drink four, a gallon of shampoo, I was going to say four liters because we're in Canada, but someone would happen to drink a gallon of shampoo, they're not going to die from it. If you're dumb enough to drink a gallon of shampoo, I'd say get out of the gene pool. I think maybe you should die from drinking that. Just get them out of the gene pool. You shouldn't pass those on to other people. So you know what? Yeah, for, for people who may not be familiar, that LD50 test, and you oh can correct God. me, Graham, if I'm off here, but I, I believe it's the, the amount of a potentially toxic substance that will kill 50% of the animals ingesting it or being yeah, exposed to it. That's exactly right. Lethal dose 50, LD50 test. So what they do is they'll take 50 guinea pigs and they'll give them, you know, whatever, a, a cup of this bleach. And if only 20% die, well, we have to do the test again and we'll give them a cup and a half until 50% of them die and then they've hit their LD50 test. And this is being done on cosmetic products and cleaning products, you know, every single day in university labs, you know, in, in corporate lab, like all over the place every day. And it's just, it needs to stop and it's totally unnecessary. If yeah. Gonna, like I say, if someone wants to drink a gallon of bleach, let them, you know, get out of the gene pool, pal, because you don't. Right. <laughs> Right. I know the animal experimentation in terms of the numbers of non-human animals that it involves, it's, you know, far, far less than our food system, but the, I I'm with you. The experimentation is just so ridiculously and gratuitously cruel because so much of it is for psychological experiments, you know, oh, let's, let's see if it's damaging to remove a baby from his mother. <laughs> Let's see yeah, if that yeah. causes any problems. Oh, yeah. like yeah. what interesting information or drug addiction, you know, cocaine or smoking. And yeah. it's like, we're conducting these experiments to learn more about our human vices. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I've, yeah. Seen, I've seen PETA videos, you know, Penn State is one of the worst because it's got a huge agriculture college there. And they're one of the worst for animal vivisection is the, is the term. Um, and the, and the experiments they do, and they do them repeatedly because a new a new um, cycle of, of students comes in and they need to do some kind of experiment for their live animal testing. So they'll repeat the same, they get the same results. So they'll be killing rabbits for whatever. And there's there's no scientific reason. It's so that they can get a grade on their paper. You know? Right, right. Yeah, Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, was a big one for me as well. And so, he, he talks a lot about that, about how it's not even... It's not even discussed whether this experiment is medically necessary, if it serves right. some critical purpose. Like that's not even something that needs to be addressed before embarking on this experiment. 
That's right. He talks about the philosophy, the philosophy about do humans have the right to do this to other beings? If we're not going to test this product on a live human baby, then obviously it's not important enough for us to justify that. And is it, are we justified in doing it on any other form of, you know, sentient life that feels pain and suffers the same that we do, maybe in different ways, but in the same capacity, right. feel pain and, you know, yeah, it was very, it was very interesting book, completely changed my whole outlook on, on life on this planet, really. Likewise. I, yeah, I got a lot. I got a lot from that book. And in fact, I have a signed copy um, from Peter wow. Singer. I ran oh, into man. him at an event. And so he signed my copy. Um, people have sometimes criticized Peter Singer in that book because it discusses utilitarianism, which is, uh, you know, you know, philosophical model that doesn't incorporate so much the idea of rights, you know, full on as the, animal as the rights. Good for the most people or something, isn't that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But nevertheless, I, I found it just very, very interesting and very illuminating. So me too. Um, well, I've just got a couple more questions for you, Graham. Yeah, I'm having fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, one question I like to ask people is how has being vegan affected the way you see other humans? You know, in a, in a moment of complete can, candidacy? No, can, candor. Being, <laughs> candor, thank you. Jeez, English, like conjugate that verb or whatever. So being candid, it, you know, it makes me judgmental because I'm like, what is wrong with people? Why don't they get it, man? And it's hard for me to love my, my family and love my friends when they're all eating meat, you know, and they're lining up at the store and they go to the butcher section and, and get this wrap, you know, plastic wrapped piece of a cow that was alive a month ago or whatever. So it makes me judgmental. I really, and I've worked on that a long, cause I've been a vegan long enough that I'm hoping is taking the judgmentalism out of me and, and making me just realize these people just aren't educated. They just don't know. You know, I I've done, um, uh, some meditation called Vipassana and, and you go for a 10 day course. And you sit in complete silence for 10 days and, and meditate. And they teach you the skill of meditation. Um, and a lot of these thoughts and feelings come up about, you know, what are we doing and why don't people get it? And, and you learn to, you learn to have compassion and it's, you know, here's hypocrisy again. Like I have compassion for all these animals that are suffering, but people are suffering too all over the world. You think of these wealthy people, you hear about the stress on their head and it's like a vice. It's just cranked tight, you know, I might not have much money and whatever, but I live a beautiful life of I'm outside all the time and I breathe and I, you know, and I give thanks to nature and stuff. These people are so messed up and they come up, they come from rigid controlled fathers in the background and mothers that were messed up. And, you know, there's been chemical dependency. So they're, I have to have compassion on them and not judge them, but say, Hey man, brother, sister, like, you know, we're all in this together. If, if you cut back your meat, even a little bit, this is, this would be the benefit that, would happen so you know i i can be quite judgmental um but i'm working on just being a compassionate person i hope and yeah right thank you okay if our listeners would like to get in touch with you where can they find you um my instagram uh what is my instagram i think it's just graham dot sparrow did you look it up chrissy i don't know graham. i did look it up um i'll put it in the show notes but Great. i don't have it in front of me Great. And Facebook is Graham Sparrow again. And my business, the business Instagram is uh, Sparrow's Nest Organics at Sparrow's Nest Organics, I believe. And so lots of cool posts on there. Lots of beautiful veggies. And I saw that. Yeah, they are incredibly beautiful. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. thank you.
All right. Well, thanks so much, Graham. I really appreciate your joining us today. I went by and so fast. <laughs> I know it did go by fast. <laughs> um, so we close every episode by taking 30 seconds of silence for the animals. So Graham, I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence for all the suffering animals, human and non-human who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. And we'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Well, thank you, Graham. And thank you, Posse. See you next time. And until then, stay strong and stay true. Awesome.